listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so very much for spending some time with us. And today we are going to talk about things that simply cannot be avoided in life. You know, sometimes you talk about death and taxes, but there are so many other things in life that you just simply simply cannot avoid. And that includes the topics that we'll be talking about today, including cell phones, surly teens, and expensive funerals. All of those things you cannot avoid. You just can't. It is put your phone down day here on the radio program. Put down the phone. Put that phone down. We're going to have stats and deets on smartphone usage, everything from influencing the upcoming federal election when you compulsively check your social media to phones in classrooms. Coming up, Stephen Lecce, Ontario's Minister of Education, will join me on the phone to talk about a change in regulations about what kids can and cannot do with their phones in schools. Smartphones and social media are a fixture of teenage life today. According to a 2018 Pew Research Center survey, more than 9 in 10 U.S. teens aging 13 to 17 say they have access to a smartphone or use social media. We're going to talk more about that coming up, but I want to begin really quickly with a quick update, you heard it in the news, about the tragedy on Lake Joseph. The former star of CBC's Dragon's Den releasing a statement on Wednesday saying that he was devastated by that incident. Here is the statement. I think it's important that we read it and really try and pay attention to the details here because I don't think this story is done yet. Quote, On late Saturday night, I was a passenger in a boat that was involved in a tragic collision with another watercraft that had no navigation lights on and then fled the scene, unquote. However, the OPP say different. The OPP say that both boats left the scene of the collision because they were trying to get emergency help. The injured on the other boat were taken to shore, transported to hospital. Obviously, the outcome, tragic. Here's Priya Sam on something that I think every reporter, every journalist that covers news in this province, and I think you will find familiar, the OPP are saying nothing. We did try to get more information about the circumstances around this, uh, around the breathalyzer and, uh, as you say, the amount of time that had passed between the accident and when the OPP was able to speak to people from both parties. And they're really remaining uh, very tight-lipped about this, likely because of the high-profile nature of the, of the story now. Police not saying anything in this province and in this country is a problem. It's something I talk about quite a bit. There is a reluctance to share information. There is a willingness on the part of the public to just simply accept that, well, our law enforcement uh, agencies probably know best about what information can be released and what can't. Obviously, this investigation is ongoing, but I think the public deserves some kinds of answers, perhaps not today, but soon. And the brother of the Florida man who was killed in that boat crash that involved the celebrity businessman Kevin O'Leary says that the retired accountant was a fun-loving father of two adult children. Gary Poltash, a 64-year-old man from Bel Air Beach, Florida, was one of two people killed on the 
those boats when they collided on Saturday night at around 11.30. The second victim, a 48-year-old Uxbridge resident, Suzanne Brito, who was initially transported to hospital in critical condition but later died. Tragic event all around. If you spend any time in cottage country, and I'm fortunate enough to get to do that, I'll be back uh, up in the Kawartha areas near Apsley this weekend for the long weekend, and I can tell you from my experience, sitting on the dock, the sun goes down and the boats don't slow down. Yeah, sure, they have the lights on, perhaps, a little twinkling light in the you know, in the distance, but the boats go roaring through where the cottages where I get to go, which I'm very fortunate, again, to have access to something like this, but there's a narrows right there. Um, and, you know, certainly the boaters were like, well, I know this lake. I've lived here for whatever, however long. And the boaters just come flying through there. And to a point where we all say collectively in the cottage, we none of us will go on the water when the sun goes down. It's just simply too dangerous. It is too dangerous. There's too much drinking. Yes, there's more awareness about you can't drink and drive your boat home, but people do it. And there's bravado, and it's nighttime, and people just don't simply care. It's scary enough sometimes during the day out there, like on a long weekend. You got to keep your head on the swivel. You got to take it very seriously. It's a very much, very much a tragic accident. Hey, let me check my phone. I haven't checked my phone in a couple of minutes. Put that phone down. Here's a story from the Toronto Star about Twitter. Twitter will unveil new rules for political actors hoping to push advertisements on Canadian voters, and that's expected today. The social media company had banned political advertising from its platform in June while it worked on a system to comply with a new Canadian election law that requires political advertising to be identified and logged. If you are a Twitter user... This is something that you will start seeing going forward. Google, Facebook's main competitor for digital advertising, opted to prohibit political advertising entirely rather than comply with rules requiring a registry of political ads. The Liberal government moved to require social media companies to create registries of political advertising as part of its response to Russian intervention in the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. So, your cell phone... And your Twitter and your social media, and that is something that we are talking about. And not just your cell phone, but how about your kid's cell phone? Should your kids be able to have their cell phone in class? Do they have to put them away? Well, that's something we're talking about today. What do you mean i got to put my phone down? Jamie Tawil, what's the deal? It's enough to drive any teacher or educator crazy. But moving forward, that sound will be seldom heard inside Ontario classrooms. As starting November 4th of this year, the use of cell phones and other mobile devices will be, for the most part, a no-go for students. The restriction applies specifically to instructional time at school, however, with some exceptions, like cell phones that are required for health and medical purposes, to support special ed needs, or for educational reasons. Now, This comes on the heels of a 2018 consultation on education reform, where an overwhelming 97% of Parents, students, and teachers alike all agreed cell phone use should be restricted in some way. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says he is confident it will improve learning, enhance classrooms, and empower educators to better prepare students for the realities of today's modern world. Jamie Tawil, Global News Radio. Hey, here's a reality of the modern world. Pay attention, everybody! 
Put the phone down and pay attention. The Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, will join me on the phone after the break. Stay with us for that. That's coming up in just a couple of moments. We're going to talk about not only the cell phone restrictions, how they will be implemented, but also some of the other issues that are on his plate right now. Obviously, we have math teaching, testing for future teachers. We have cutbacks. A lot of things happening on in that file. Uh, I want a quick note here, if I could, on Queens Park and something that we just talked about quickly in the news that Premier Doug Ford has now named former Post Media Vice President as his new Chief of Staff. Jamie Wallace had been serving in that role on an interim basis since June when Dean French resigned. Now, Jamie Wallace is not a name you probably know. Dean French, if you listen to this program, is a name that you do know. French abruptly left the Chief of Staff job amid controversy over a series of government appointees who were found to have personal ties to him. Now, Wallace first joined Ford's office in January as Deputy Chief of Staff after serving in various senior roles at Post Media. He actually covered the Ontario legislature as a reporter, worked in the communications for the PC government in the early 2000s. He's experienced, he knows what he's doing, and it's going to be a sea change. And already we have seen this change in terms of the leadership style coming out of the Premier's office. No more do we hear the talk about forced standing ovations and toe the line and the sort of just bull in a china shop style that was what Dean French operated under. Jamie Wallace already has begun to institute a kindler, gentler office of the Premier. We'll see how long that stays in place. He does, after all, work for Doug Ford, who at the end of the day is fond of bombast and fond of shooting from the lip, and we'll have to see how that all plays out. One of the things that also changed right around the time that Dean French resigned was, of course, a massive shakeup of the cabinet and the new education minister, Stephen Lecce. He is now in charge of that file, and he joins me after the break here on the Alan Carter Radio Program, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the program as we continue our discussion about cell phones, surly teens at expensive funerals, and coming up, just an extraordinary press conference from the lawyer from Chairgirl. Uh, You'll have to hear that coming up. Just stay tuned for that. And later in the program, we are going to be talking about funerals, about shuffling off this mortal coil. Now you think that's a bit of a downer, but it's not. Because you, my friends, have the opportunity to go out in style. If you have your way about it, and you do, how would you like to go out? We have new polling information about what people are choosing in terms of funerals. That's coming up. And plus, I want to hear your dream funeral, the one you can't be at because, you know, you're dead. That's coming up on the radio program. But we're going to talk about cell phones and teenagers, surly teenagers. You can't avoid them. I got one. You can't, you can't avoid them. They're everywhere. 
Researchers at the University of California, Irvine, studied approximately 400 teens aged 10 to 15 years old, and the study looked at both the long-term effects of phone usage as well as day-to-day impact. They followed the children for approximately two years and monitored the adolescents' daily smartphone use and mental health data over the course of 14 days. The children, who all attended public schools in North Carolina, represented socially and economically diverse areas. And what the study found, if there's no correlation between increased smartphone usage and worsened mental health. In short, the extent of time kids used on their phones did not appear to have any real effect on their mental health. The long-term research showed phone usage, social media access, and use had no negative effect on adolescents' mental health. Interesting. I think as a parent, my belief would be different. I mean, obviously I'm not a researcher, but obviously as a parent of a teen, you worry about that sort of thing. Because, you know, when I was growing up, my parents just worried about how much Love Boat I was watching. Oh, it was a lot. (laughs) But... But it wasn't nearly as bad as having, you know, access to a cell phone and a chat room and having no parental oversight. It's it's almost impossible to have some these days. And that brings us to our kids in classrooms and the provincial government now announcing plans to move forward with restricting the use of cell phones and other personal mobile devices in classrooms beginning November 4th, 2019, the restriction applies to instructional time at school. However, exceptions will be made if cell phones are required for health or medical purposes to support special education needs or for educational purposes as directed by an educator. I'm reading here from the news release from from the Ontario government this morning. And Stephen Lecce is the Minister of Education and joins me on the line to talk about this. Minister, hello. How you doing? Are you calling me from a cell phone? Uh, I, I am incredibly, but I can... And is this better? <laughs> it's it's fine. I was just making sure that you weren't in a learning environment, because I know, what are you, 28 now? Are you are you out of high school? Are you? Well, you know, I, I didn't think there was a uh, rotary phone to try you on, Alan, so I thought I'd use myself today, but... I'm always learning, but I'm not in the classroom. And what I'll say to you, uh, Alan, is is one thing. You know, look, I'm a modern generational public servant. I'm 32, uh, the tender age of 32. But I think as someone who embraces technology, someone who believes in the T in STEM, the science, technology, engineering, and math, this is not about turning our back on those use of the digital economy or the idea of technology, not at all. In fact, I'm trying to encourage more technology in the classroom as a way of inspiring learning from a pedagogy perspective, how we teach. My concern is these impediments to learning, the distractions of learning. And my message to students in the, in the, in the province is when it comes to class, as I've said before, students should be focused on their studies, not their social media. So it's not about any adversity to the use of technology. It's about embracing it when it's for academic purposes. In the absence of scholastic achievement, I don't want to see a cell phone in the class. And as you mentioned, there's some exceptions you know, for health, medical purposes, etc. And if it's not for instruction time, meaning if a teacher at the front of the class doesn't say, take out your laptop, computer, iPad, whatever, because we're going to be talking, we're going to need geo maps to go uh, in our geography class. Without that type of specific sanctioned instruction, 
I do not want to see cell phones in the class. I do not want to permit distractions because yesterday's EQAO results yet again prove we've seen some declines in math and, in fact, declines across the board, you know, that I think are concerning. And part of the root cause, one could argue, is in today's digital world, there's too many distractions. Well, yesterday you spent your whole time blaming it on the Liberals. Well, I blame it on a failed form, an ideological way of teaching discovery math that didn't work. But it's not about, you know, neither or proposition. I think a major challenge is the curriculum in math in the past. Since the introduction in 2009, we've seen consecutive, for one decade straight, decline or stagnation in classes. So there's clear causation in what we were teaching, how we were teaching, and the performance of our kids. I mean, that's not an unfair assumption. The fact is, and there's even, there's even correlity between... Uh, not just EQAO results, but even their their um, their uh, report card results. So the fact is, there's a few things at play. What they were teaching for math is a problem, but also the distraction of the classroom. So let's fix them both. We're updating the curriculum. We're taking cell phones out of the class. We are focused on financial literacy. We're making math a priority with a $200 million four-year plan. I mean, we could do all the above, Alan, you know? But in terms of the actual application of the change of the Provincial Code of Conduct and how it will be applied, and you mentioned, okay, the geography teacher can say, all right, take out your phones. Do individual teachers, do individual boards, how much leeway do they have with this provincial uh, edict? There is, there is, you know, professional discretion absolutely applies within the code, and it provides that discretion for academic purposes. There, the Provincial Code of Conduct has been updated effectively to create a standard, because what happened in the past is, you know, you may say, well, look, some boards do this. Some boards don't, but a lot of them do. That's true. Different standards, different expectations. You could have a different, a parent or the child, the kid in the class, could have a different expectation if they live north or south of Steeles, for example, in Toronto or New York Region or wherever they are. So we're standardizing it. We're universalizing the expectation. We're creating clear, uh, uh, you know, awareness of this program, of this uh, protocol, rather. And we're giving educators and boards and, and, and directors of education and all of our partners and teachers themselves over two months to implement it so we get this right. But we have confidence they'll be able to do it. There are some progressive steps they can take to make sure that there's that accountability for the child. And at the end of the day, it's just about removing impediments. It's common sense. 97% of parents wanted us to do this in the fall consultation, and we're delivering on that mandate this September, or this year, rather. Stephen Lecce is the Minister of Education. I want to ask you one uh, question uh, not related to what exactly we're talking about, but uh, news earlier this week about uh, math testing for uh, future teachers. Explain to me why a prospective music teacher should be able to, to uh, pass a math test. Well, the results, I think, confirm that students are struggling to meet the provincial math standards. We've seen progressive decline. What we're doing, to be fair, I, don't, I wouldn't want this to be lost, is we've launched a four-year math strategy, $200 million commitment, of which a significant aspect is professional development of our educators. We're investing in PD because we believe educators themselves want to do the best they can for our kids. And so we're investing in professional development. We're making that a priority writ large, and we're doing it specifically when it comes to math. If you, as an educator or a student, you know, particularly for the kids, if they don't have grasp by mathematics, numeracy, financial literacy, they're not going to get a job in the marketplace, today's modern economy. So for educators, what we're trying to do is create a sense of metric. And for anyone in the public or private sector, you will know that in the absence of metrics, without knowing what the problem is, it's hard to identify how we solve it. Where we, you know, the EQAO results, for example, 
those measurements have allowed the governments past and present to reallocate resources. It used to be the grade three kids were doing poor in math and grade six were doing great. An emphasis went in the grade three area. Now grade threes are ahead and grade six are behind. So that data informs public policy decision. It creates an evidence-based decision of where we need to put and emphasize skills. I think educators in the province should have, should have that numeracy skill uh, in everything they even, do. Even a music teacher? Because, Minister, that is where I just don't understand. I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, look, the bottom line is every educator in the province, we believe, should have basic access to knowledge and the retention of it. And to be fair to many teachers, they move around the disciplines. You know, they'll move various sectors, they'll go into different departments. Uh, And so we think having numeracy is foundational. I mean, my goodness, in today's modern economy, every educator should have the grasp of that knowledge. They do, but we want to strengthen their resolve. We want to improve their abilities. And, and, And to be honest with you, and as someone you know, in your own experience as a parent and others, there's a lot of synergies between math and a lot of subject matters, including the social sciences. So it's not just some subject matter in isolation. We need math to be foundational in what we teach our kids. And in every area, there's usually some form of synergy. Having that knowledge could only strengthen our kids' ability to learn. And so the more we can do of that, the better. And I want to be clear, that's not the major emphasis of yesterday. The emphasis was investing in our kids putting $200 million bucks on the table to and $55 million this September to strengthen their head, to do better, and to raise the bar when it comes to teaching math skills. But we also think professional development and a form of, uh, of, of metric-based testing, so we know the problem and conversely where to fix the solution, where to put the resources, is going to help us when it comes to reorienting the province on a pathway where kids are actually doing better and well exceeding the provincial average, not failing it under 50%, as is the case. Uh, for a grade six math at 48%. Stephen Lecce, he is Ontario's Minister of Education. Thank you so much for being on the line. Thanks so much, Alan. Have a good day. Put that phone down. Put the phone down and pay attention to this musical milestone. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. 60 years ago today, George Harrison was supposed to open the club with a different band, but they broke up right before. So, what to do? Rogue Best, the brother of original Beatles drummer Pete Best, picks up the story. George said, well, I've got a couple of friends who aren't doing anything. I'll bring them back tomorrow. And he arrived back with John Lennon, Paul McCartney. They reformed the Quarrymen, played on the opening night. In all, the Quarrymen played the Casbah 13 times, and later as the Beatles, 76 times. Tom Rivers, ABC News, London. We have a chair girl update. Chair girl update, ladies and gentlemen. Please, please. Pay attention, everybody. Jason Chapman is with us. What's going on with chair girl? I didn't expect to walk into you and talk about this, Alan, but it's funny that you introduced this the way you did. If you remember back in February, there was a viral video of a woman tossing a chair from high rise off the gardener. It was reckless. It was irresponsible. And we in the media and others dubbed this woman chair girl. So Marcella Zoya was scheduled to be in court today. Her case is continuing to wind its way through the courts. And on the TV side of things on Global News at noon, we took her lawyer speaking live. The case was put over, which means nothing happened today. But her lawyer came out and basically lambasted us in the media and I would argue the city, 
for calling her client chair girl. Um, here is Greg Leslie speaking a few minutes ago. Everybody has to remember how young she is, right? And it's a different world. And Should that be an excuse for chucking a chair off it's, it's not. It's not an excuse at all. It's not an excuse. You guys have portrayed her as somebody who doesn't care, somebody who's not remorseful because of the way she acts on Instagram. And I'm saying that is not the person that she is. Okay. So what do you think, Alan? I mean... I'm I sorry, would argue no, wait, I'm, yeah, I'm, go, I'm, go I'm too busy looking at the Toronto Sun, some photos of her in, what is she in, the Dominican here? Yeah. Yeah. Quote, unquote, chair girl. So it seems to me, if I am not mistaken, that she is in some way, if not profiting, at least gaining exposure from all of this. Certainly she has more than 15 minutes of fame off of this, right? Okay. Now, her, her lawyer insists, though that her client is not the person we've made her out to be, and here he is saying it. She's 19 years old. She's uh, maybe a bit immature. Uh, She's definitely a person who likes the social media. We're trying to instill upon her that that's not the approach, not the the way to go. And I'm hoping that you'll be seeing, maybe you guys won't like it, but I'm hoping you won't be seeing her as much on social media. We won't be liking it much because she posts the gold on the social media, I believe is what he's (laughs) trying to say. Uh, (laughs) I mean, is it unfair? I will say it's not. I will go on the record and I will make a stance and say it's not unfair that we've dubbed her chair girl. It may be unfair that we continue to call her chair girl. What? Welcome to 2019. Yeah. I mean, all right. This is all right, how we, man. Well, you got. I'm, I'm not going to get upset about that. <laughs> I'm not going to dimensional. Well, surly teens man, is though. part of our, our our entire theme today. So nice to see that we have some surly teens on the show. And cell phone video too, right? There you go. Cell Cells, phone. You theme. can't avoid cell phones, surly teens, or expensive funerals coming You're welcome. up. Welcome. I thought you'd enjoyed the update. I appreciate that. That's Jason Chapman. Bye-bye. What do you do around here, by the way? Executive producer, allegedly. <laughs> Executive. What Whatever the heck that means. That's the thing that they say when they don't give you a raise. They go, we'll call you executive yeah, producer. that's right. Actually. So you get no more money, but nothing. you get a better title. How about that? Thanks. I'll take it. All right. Where am I? Bye. Thank you. Chair girl. We are talking about a new study now about uh, your pension. In a study from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives found that 90 companies listed on the TSX that have defined benefit pension plans, only a handful of them, actually fund their workers' pensions. At the same time, they're busy paying up billions of dollars in dividends. In other words, instead of putting the money where they say they're going to put the money in that pension fund, they're doing what companies do, which is pay dividends because that's what the market looks for. David McDonald is a senior economist and study co-author and joins me on the line. Hi, David. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, don't chuck a chair over a railing. Just That's just a little I'll bit of... I'll take a note of that and I certainly in, won't record it and put it on Instagram. A bit of advice for you. Uh, so what did you find about these major companies? Yeah, so we looked at the, the 250 biggest companies on the, the TSX. Uh, to find out which of these companies had defined benefit plans. This is the gold standard retirement pension plan. And then of those companies, um, how much were they paying out to shareholders versus what what was the deficit in the plans that they had? Uh, And so unfortunately what we found was that 
these companies that have these DB plans in 2017 paid out uh, over $60 billion to shareholders combined, but at the same time held uh, $12 billion worth of pension deficits. So in essence, they paid out five times more to shareholders than the one-time payment that would be required to fully fund their pension plans. And what is obviously, you know, obviously paying out dividends increases stock price, it's, it's more advantageous for the company. What's the defense from the company's point of view? Well, the defense from the company's point of view is usually they're meeting the letter of the law. And the letter of the law is that you need to get, in Ontario in any event, you need to get to uh, over 85% funding ratio. And once you're over 85, the regulators don't bother you anymore, and they'll let you sit at just over 85% as long as you like. Uh, there's no requirement to get to 100%. Now, some companies have gotten to 100%. Um, and so I think the, the larger issue, though, is that is the question of who, who should be paid first and who should be paid second uh, in a company. Uh, certainly, if there are profits or there are losses, those should fall on the shareholders. But the wages that are being paid directly to workers or their deferred wages through pension plans should be paid first. The workers should be first in line. Unfortunately, what's happened uh, is that because pension regulators haven't updated to this new uh, you know, corporate environment where shareholder enrichment is the goal of corporations instead of uh, trying to make great services and products or trying to take care of workers, uh, you end up with a situation where most of these funds could rapidly pay off their pension deficits, but year after year they choose not to because the pension regulators don't force them to. But it, I guess the regulators forcing them to, that would really upend the market as it works now. I mean, you made that point. This is precisely how the market works, is that it's shareholder enrichment. Dividend payout is absolutely vital. Uh, that, that is certainly the shift in terms of the, the corporate world, that, uh, that the goal is to enrich shareholders as opposed to building better products or, or trying to uh, take care of their, their workers. And I think that the... But is it, that's an ideological point of view, is it not? It, the, oh, it certainly is, yeah. I mean, that's certainly been a change. I mean, there's a change in the 1980s towards that approach. And pension regulators are, are certainly watching to make sure that the companies get above that 85% ratio. And if they are not, then the pension regulator steps in. And so the argument that we're making in this paper is that companies are demonstrating they clearly have the capacity to make up the pension deficits that exist because they're paying out all this cash to shareholders who should technically be second in line. Uh, and so in the cases where you know, there are persistent pension deficits and companies decide year after year to pay out far more to shareholders, that regulators should step in and, and, and uh, push companies to, to make up those pension deficits. Well, it's a difficult thing because obviously for those of us who are lucky enough to actually have something like that, that gold-plated pension, you want to make sure that it is there at the end of the day. And there seems seems to be, from your research, not a guarantee that that will actually be the case. Well, and that's the issue, is that you want to make sure these plans are fully funded. This is the gold standard defined benefit plan. Um, you're right that those are certainly declining. And so as a result, you know, people are going to rely more on the Canada Pension Plan, which has recently expanded, and other programs like Old Age Security, which are, you know, government programs, because the corporate sector just isn't interested in um, providing retirement plans. And it's not because they're too expensive. I mean, clearly the study shows that companies have far more money than they know what to do with, and so they're paying it just straight back out to shareholders. Uh, it's just because they've decided that they don't want to bear the risk of, of their workers' retirements. They want the workers to bear the risk of that retirement, and as a result, they'll meet the minimum standards, uh, but very few of them will, will, will completely fund the, their plans. David McDonald is a senior economist and study co-author with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Thanks so much for being on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Socialists. Possibly.
or just prudent planning. It could be one or the other. Socialists. Under every bed. Socialists. Coming up on the radio program, cell phones, surly teens, inexpensive funerals. All right, you heard the numbers right there. I really don't know if anybody's going to call in with this. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about your own funeral? Have you ever considered how you would like to to do it? Well, we got new stats coming out of the UK about traditional funerals and the fact that they're dying out, if you'll pardon the pun. But before we get to that, and please call in, because my producer says there's nobody calling for that. Nobody, nobody's thinking. Of course, she's 20, so she's not thinking about her funeral. I'm closer to the end of life, so I'm thinking about my funeral. But I just, what, I just wonder if you've ever thought about that. If you ever think, well, you know, this is. I want something that's not traditional. So give me just a dingle, and let me know how you feel about that. But first, reasons why you may be planning a funeral include an increase in measles. Measles. The World Health Organization calls that a dramatic resurgence, in part fueled by vaccine refusals with nearly 90,000 people sickened by the virus in the first half of this year. That's double the number reported for the same period in 2018. Infectious disease researcher Jenny Roll. Having reached the point of eradicating this completely preventable disease, we're now back in the situation where we're backpedaling, and frankly, I don't think it's going to get any better. The picture, though, is mixed with some countries showing few cases, while others, like Ukraine, reporting the vast majority. Tom Rivers, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Okay, so if the measles don't get you, you know what will get you? That secondhand vape. Nicotine, heavy metals, aldehydes, glycerin, flavoring substances, all of those in ultra-fine particle form are entering your lungs when you vape, and your friends and loved ones are also breathing them in if they're nearby. According to a new study by the U.S. National Youth Tobacco Survey, about a third of middle and high school students were exposed to vaping aerosols last year, a 30% increase from a few years before. As more places ban vaping, more studies are showing that even passive exposure to the vapor could pose a health risk, especially to lungs that aren't fully developed. So there's, Preston, ABC News. Sorry, Sherry. There's a couple of reasons why you might be planning a funeral. You might get the measles. You might get the secondhand vape thing. Out of the UK, a traditional traditional religious funeral is dying a death, according to a report that also reveals the soaring popularity in the United Kingdom of no-frills, direct cremations, cheaper, less conventional send-off with no mourners present. The UK's largest funeral director found that one in ten people want a traditional farewell, but it underlines a growing popularity of personalized, bespoke ceremonies without formal trappings. And our call out to you, what are you thinking about for shuffling off the mortal coil? 416-870-6400, star 640 on your cell. I will tell you, perhaps, if you were in Prince Edward Island, you could do this. There's a funeral home there that is offering a new service, an opportunity to have cremated remains scattered at sea with accompanying fiddle music. The owner of Dingwell Funeral Home says he got the idea while having dinner with a friend. I thought, you know, living in PEI, it's beautiful. But nice option to give families. So you get yourself a number of burial options here, ranging from a basic service where 
The captain will release the ashes in a biodegradable urn to a full service with family and friends on board for the release, followed by a lobster dinner. Mmm! Goodbye, Uncle Stan. This lobster's delicious. So, the question for you, ladies and gentlemen, is we talk about... What could be a grim thing, or it could be a fabulous celebration, or is it something that you think about and plan for? Colin in Mississauga, he's thought about the great beyond. What are you thinking about, Colin, for your funeral? Hi, thank you for taking my call. It's, it's actually an ancient tradition, uh, a Viking funeral, where what they would do is they were producing high-carbon steel back around 800. So they thought they were putting the power of the ancestors and the power of the, the gods in. So what they would do is they would take their ancestors' skull, they would cremate it down, and they would pestle and mortar it into a very fine powder. They would take a measured amount of said carbon and put it into the crucible to keep the levels of carbon correct for producing high-carbon steel, which is excellent for producing spring steel and very flexible weapons. So the weapons were thought to have the power of the gods, and they would put a little boat with sand in it out in a lightning storm into the lake to get glass when the lightning would hit the sand. I, I dig all of this. The carbon tax is going to kill you, though, on the cost, I'm thinking. Thanks, Colin. I appreciate that. Patrick uh, is in Barrie. What do you think? Uh, traditional funeral? A big, fancy, expensive funeral? Is, is that something that you would plan for? No, I wouldn't plan for an expensive one by any means. Uh, for me personally, I just want to be cremated, and uh, my ashes scattered to a couple places where I've told my wife to fuck them. And uh, have my friends all come around, <clears throat> excuse me, have a final drink with me, and, uh, you know, talk about the good times. Funerals used to be so melancholy. I remember as a kid going to a funeral, everybody's bawling, yeah. carrying on. Do you remember your first open casket? I sure do. I was. Oh, my God. I remember that. I couldn't believe that. As a kid, you went in and you're like, are you kidding me? There's a dead guy in here? Well, in my case, it was my father, so... Uh, you know, it was kind of, it was a reality shock at, uh, at the age of four, but at the same time, I also accepted it. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about that, Patrick. Uh, oh, oh, that's okay. Uh, come on, 47 years ago. Yeah, well, I know, you know, we, as, as, you know, we all grow through these tragedies and sort of learn from them, don't we? Uh, Michael is in Toronto, and Michael talking about, uh, I think you were talking about your mom's funeral you planned recently? I, I had to plan that two years ago. And, you know, I had very little instructions, um, but I still went the traditional route, though. But what I was going to say, the cremation is way more expensive uh, than the funeral, though. So you don't really uh, lose or lessen your costs that really? much. Really? So, well, I, it, I thought it would be cheaper, this bespoke uh, cremated thing. No, that's not, no? No, you have to do things like piecemeal, because I tried to save costs as much as I wanted. And that's pretty much what my mom said. She said, no obituary, no flowers, no visitation. So, like, the cremation was about, like, 3200 3400 But then you also have to get, like, a cremation burial plot as well because she didn't want, like, an urn. And so, you know, that was, like, about another 3400 uh, to actually get that properly done in a cemetery. And the actual funeral was only $300, and I was able to do it as a charitable donation uh, to the church. But even the priest basically said, okay, this is not the way you're doing it. But, again, that was the way to save costs. But... I think about, you know, for myself, I'm old school. I kind of want to do the same thing because I planned it for my mom. I want exactly the same way. But a lot of my friends, they're not doing funerals at all. If they're ever going to do anything, they're going to have, like, a celebratory wake, basically have, like, a party atmosphere and have food, and that's what they would do. 
how shocked were you by the the cost of it? It sounds like you worked pretty hard to keep that cost down. Y- you know what? I know people who said even more. Crap. I was Hold shocked up. about it. Like, Tomorrow. Told other people about it. They're shocked. But I know some people. They spent like ten thousand dollars just on flowers alone, and so you you can easily spend a lot of money uh, on this thing, and it's not worth it. Thank you, Michael. Let's go to uh, Tom, who is in Newmarket, and you have an idea of the way that you would like to be celebrated once you're gone from this planet. Yes, my uh, all my friends, family, we all hunt. So in an ideal world, I would love to get my ashes after it, because they're not really ashes, right? They're hard. Uh, into shotgun shells, blow them up over the lake or over the duck ponds where we hunt. And I have a, if I may say and brag for a second, a gorgeous scotch collection and I'll never, I'll never get through it all my, yeah. wife's, my wife's an immigrant from scotland so she goes back every like two or three times a year tom we need to be friends nice, <laughs> brings me back a nice bottle every time plus when i go over obviously so i will never get through it all i just love it so much i don't even like drinking it and um so when i'm dead that's going to be sort of the celebration of you know tom's been saving this for all these years, enjoy. You know, um, I think probably some of your friends are thinking, "Gee, Tom, have another, have another unfiltered cigarette." <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tom. Thank you. Appreciate you being on the program. Kyle is in Mississauga. Kyle, what, what do you think? You got any plans for your own funeral? Kyle seems to. Oh, he has a plan. There he is. Kyle, you got a plan? Yeah, when I get uh, old and frail, I'm just going to disappear one day into the north <laughs> until I starve to death or something eats me. I think that's an honorable death. You're just gonna you're just gonna wander off into the like that Homer Simpson sort of fade back into the hedge move. You just kind of you just kind of just fade to black. I think fate will have mercy and bring me to the edge of a cliff or something like that, something glorious, you know. <laughs> glorious. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it. Kyle's got a plan. Well, there's some great ideas on the the ways that you would like to go out. This is from Des Moines, Iowa. Bring out your dead. That's what an Iowa funeral home is calling on families to do with the unclaimed cremated remains of nearly 100 people that it's been keeping in a locked closet for years. Some since the 90s. Uh, hey, is this your dead guy? That is something. I want to get you an update real quick before we run out of real estate here. We talked about this yesterday on the program. This is from Rochester, New Hampshire. New Hampshire's governor has now stepped in to help a woman with a 15-year-old vanity license plate showing a common phrase that parents say. The State Division of Motor Vehicles had asked Wendy Auger to surrender her plate. It reads the following. P before we go. The division had said that phrases related to excretory acts, excretory, are not permitted. But now the governor has reached out to the division and, quote-unquote, strongly urged them to allow the Rochester woman to keep her plate. Socialists. That's who's responsible for that kind of thing. 